On May 2, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted a panel of the 2015-2016 Technology and Democracy Fellows for a wide-ranging discussion at the intersection of technology and democratic governance, both at the Kennedy School and in the field. Together with moderator Arkan Fung, Ford Foundation Professor of Democracy and Citizenship and Academic Dean at the Harvard Kennedy School, panelists explored themes of scholarship and practice, including technological intelligence and the language, tools, and concepts policymakers and civic innovators need to move their work forward. Panelists included Angelica Dejo-Garikar, innovator in residence at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Tiana Epps-Johnson, founder and executive director at the Center for Technology and Civic Life, Marcy Harris, CEO and co-founder of PopVox, Aaron Myron, MPB student at the Harvard Kennedy School, and Drew Mometa, database journalist at 538. For more information about the Ash Center or the Technology and Democracy Fellows Program, visit ash.harvard.edu. Thanks everyone for joining us uh, this afternoon at the uh, Roundtable on the Future of Technology and Democracy. It's great to be able to have all of you join in this discussion about digital technologies, the internet and governance, and especially great to have our non-resident fellows converge on Cambridge for today and tomorrow for a set of residential activities. Um, I think it's fair to say that the Kennedy School has uh, definitely been behind where it ought to be, if not behind other institutions in the uh, domain of activities around teaching and research and actual projects and practice around technology and governance. We've seen digital technologies transform every dimension of our lives from how certainly how we socialize one another to uh, socialize with one another on social media to how we produce things uh, and make things to what is actually made. And I guess I think it's uh, probably fair enough to say that the public sector is a relative late comer to utilizing uh, digital technologies. We see probably the most activity in the realm of campaigning and especially fundraising and political campaigns, but a little bit less in other kinds of areas. And it's really interesting to think about why that is. Why hasn't there been a killer app in the <laughs> politics and public policy space uh, as there has been in nearly every aspect of social and productive space on um, the internet and the private sector, right? Um, I have my own feelings about why that is. I think uh, one reason is that the, the idea of a killer app is that lots and lots of people use it, right? That's how you know it's a killer app. And, and uh, if more people use it and you're in the private domain, then that may, means you get more money to develop your company and your project, product and move it forward, right? But a killer app in the public space doesn't necessarily mean that more and more people use it like they use Netflix or Twitter or Facebook. It has to mean a bunch of different things. It has to mean that our public lives and it produces public value in different ways, which is not the same thing. Um, I think another reason is that uh, we tend to, as I've just done, drawn analogies between the private sector and the public space. And I think that uh, a lot of mistakes have come from acting on such an analogy. If people remember the early days of the Obama administration, in the first term the White House put out 
uh, created a web uh, uh, crowdsourcing platform for called White House Open for Questions on the idea, and I think this is at the initiative of a bunch of uh, people associated with, uh, who are familiar with crowdsourcing technologies that worked pretty well in the private and social space. And they said, well, why don't we do this in the public space? Let's crowdsource a bunch of questions uh, about, uh, see what Americans think the most important question to ask the president is, right? And so a couple of the questions that got on the top 10 list are, were about marijuana legalization and about whether or not he was an American citizen, right? And the, um, the reason that it didn't work in that space, of course, is that politics is a competitive space, right? And so when you look at the Wikipedia article on Welsh corgis, it's a really good article because everybody's trying to get to the truth about Welsh corgis, right? But if you look at more controversial topics, it, the crowdsourcing dynamic kind of falls apart because people aren't seeking to converge on a truth anymore. They're seeking to assert their own particular view, uh, sometimes about what the truth is, but, but sometimes just to beat up the other side. And so uh, politics is, is often about that kind of dynamic. And so there's a lot of disanalogies between the private and the public use of digital technologies. Um, now, my own view about I think that's actually good for the Kennedy School because uh, I think our distinctive advantage in this space, if we are going to make a positive contribution in the area of technology and politics, is that the Kennedy School is distinctively positioned, I think, to operate right at the intersection of the technology space and the public policy space. Um, for those of you who used to watch the Steve Jobs keynotes for Apple when he was giving them, he would always say that Apple is a different company from every other technology company in the Valley and other places because it combines in equal measure expertise in technology and expertise in the liberal arts. He said that the most uh, influential class that he didn't take when he was kind of at Reed College was calligraphy, right? A liberal arts. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very significant. Um, and similarly, I think that uh, progress in the space of technology and governance will come from a series of people and insights that are equally grounded in technological command of digital technologies and command of public policy and politics, those two domains. And I think that's very uh, difficult to come by. We see lots of people who are good at one and or good at the other and they talk past at one another. But if we can get those two conversations going, it's uh, the right way to go. I think that's where, uh, that's where the brightest future leads. Now, in this space of digital technology and governance, we got, uh, we've got a lot more going thanks to people like Dan Schrag and uh, Nick Sinai and some other folks who've been working hard at this. And uh, you know, this meeting isn't about the curricular space, but I just want to tell you a little bit, say a couple of words about uh, what we're doing on the class side of things, that is teaching our students. And, uh, our thought is we should begin to kind of carve out uh, three or four areas in which we focus our curricular efforts. And one of those is on cybersecurity and privacy and um, with the, the iPhone FBI debate that still is ongoing, we know that that's a very, very important area with nation states attacking the IT infrastructure of universities. It also kind of comes to a head in uh, that way. So cybersecurity and privacy is one important area. Another important area is the use of digital technologies to improve 
the delivery of public goods and services, e-government and e-public goods, if you like. And uh, some of the fellows here are working in that space and we'll tell you about some of the projects that are ongoing there. And then a third real important space for us is the space of digital politics, public engagement, media, and organizing. And um, uh, the Ash Center is deeply involved in that, as is the Shorenstein Center. And we're developing some uh, great course offerings in that space, too. But that's kind of how we're parsing out the space right now. Um, now, throughout, it's important for students and for other folks involved in the technology and governance space, unlike um, some of the other things that we do at the Kennedy School, I think that learning in this space is uh, deeply connected to projects, to actually building things. That's the way that we get judgment about what is a good and plausible technology or technology idea and what isn't. And so a lot of the activity that occurs in this space around the Kennedy School is actually around building projects with organizations, with governments, and you see this um, a little bit in the technology project, in the courses uh, taught by people like Nick Sinai um, and uh, others that in which there are actual partnerships with government. Um, Yorit DeJong, I don't know if Yorit is here, but he's doing a great class that's working with cities around Massachusetts just around problem properties. Right, just abound in buildings, and um, you know this isn't. There aren't too many. I live in Brookline. There are not too many problem properties in Brookline, but lots of other cities in Massachusetts. <laughs> there are a lot of problem properties, and what the students have done is they've developed a whole uh, platform. A couple of students developed a platform to allow cities to combine different streams of data, like the tax assessment data and the fines and uh, the police reports. And all of those streams of data now go into a property database that's free for any of these cities to use. And then the project teams have worked with this. That's the technology part. The policy and management part is that other teams of students have worked with each of those cities to customize the platform and to work with the different departments to figure out a work process so that can effectively target the problem properties combining the streams of data. So it's, you know, that's just one example of how uh, the technology kind of really caches out in practice here, right? Um, now, part of it is about the courses, and that's just what I've talked about. Uh, that's what I've just talked about. But a big part of it is also about trying to, since we don't have, we're building kind of deliberately and slowly the internal expertise in the Kennedy School in this subject, it's real important to get expertise coming in uh, to the Kennedy School from outside. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is that we don't have that much of it inside, so it's got to come from outside. The other reason is that that is where the kind of maybe, again, more than in some other areas of practice, things are changing so quickly in this space of digital governance in the world of practice. And to be relevant and uh, to be uh, effective, we really need to get folks from outside in. And so uh, Tim Burke and other people at the Ash Center have created a uh, technology and democracy fellowship program uh, that has resulted in the people around these table, in the, around this table, who are tech, our kind of first round of technology fellows. Uh, so in the uh, just a little bit, we've hosted seven fellows, and uh, the fellows are here to do their own projects, carry their own projects forward, but they come to uh, the Kennedy School from time to time and host workshops. And of those uh, workshops, 133 people have signed up, students have signed up 
for those in uh, this academic year. So it's working really great. This is kind of a test year for us. We're going to tweak it a little bit, but we think it's, it's gone really great. And we'll hear about the projects in a while, but let me just introduce to you some of uh, the fellows who are able to join us here uh, around the table today. Uh, Angela? Angelica. Angelica, I'm sorry. Angelica is uh, the Organized Innovator in Residence at the uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. She is by no means representing DH, uh, uh, S, uh, HHS at this event. She's participating here as an individual. But at HHS, her role has uh, focused on identifying opportunities for organ donation and transplant, uh, transplant, uh, transplantation matches in the ecosystem. And during her fellowship here, she led a workshop on design thinking, which is um, not exactly around the internet, but I think design thinking very much grows out of and has been spurred by a lot of people interested in how to design uh, platforms that are successful. And uh, Angelica will tell us a little bit uh, about design thinking and her project in a moment. Um, good. Tiana Epps Johnson is the founder and executive director of the Center for Technology and Civic Life. Uh, uh, Tiana and her organization provide resources and training to support local election administrators in ways that they run elections, communicate with voters, public civic, publish civic data sets, and I didn't know this, that uh, the data sets have been accessed over 60 million times and are driving civic participation and hopefully the running of elections better. Um, although probably not perfect yet in this election year. Um, Marcy Harris is a former congressional staffer, lawyer, and founder and CEO of PopVox, which uh, was founded in 2011 and is an organization that, uh, whose tool delivers verified constituent messages to Congress. Uh, it creates a platform that hopefully has some uh, protections against astroturfing and will get uh, members of Congress real feedback from real constituents that they will use. And so Marcy will tell us a little bit about PopVox in a moment. Um, Krumil Mehta is a database journalist at 538. Uh, we met one another at one of the Hack for Congress events, which was more than a year ago now, I think. Yeah. Was it just last year? A little bit last year. Uh, and so that's how he got in touch with the Kennedy School. Uh, still at 538, and his workshop, his workshop focused on technical tools that he uses at 538 to look at a whole bunch of different kinds of political data um, and then uh, you know, uh, help people understand coding tools and collaboration tools like GitHub, the command line for people who know what that is, and uh, finding and analyzing data sets online. Um, Holly Rusan Gilman is a longtime uh, friend, participant, was a fellow at the Ash Center, a PhD uh, from the Gov Department. She's just written a great book on uh, the first instances of participatory budgeting in the United States called participatory, uh, Democracy Reinvented, Participatory Budgeting and Civic Innovation in America. You should check it out. It's about New York, Chicago, some of the other places. Um, and then uh, her workshop focused on civic technology, the world of civic technology as a whole. She's developed a syllabus for that, which she's teaching uh, at Columbia and, uh, and working with other universities to, to teach that syllabus. Uh, Aaron Myron is an MPP student at the Kenny School, uh, chief technology officer of the student group Tech for Change. And um, 
Before coming to HKS, Aaron was deputy CTO at the Public Interest Network, where he uh, worked on data management systems, web-based tools, and supervised a web development team. Okay, uh, great. So that's about all the talking that I'm going to do, thank goodness. <laughs> and so I'll just kind of uh, organize. We have it kind of organized in, in three separate sections as panel discussion. I don't know if we'll get through all three, but we'll start with just a first uh, couple of questions. The first question for the fellows and then other folks can join in is about, uh, you know, if you could talk a little bit about your project and in particular how you view the most important kind of interventions of digital technology in improving the condition of either poli our politics or our policymaking process or the generation of public goods kind of right now in the next one, two year frame. And you know, basically, what is it that you're working on and why should, why do you care about working on that thing and why should other people care? Marcy. Yeah. <laughs> so um, briefly, Popbox is a, a civic engagement platform that came out of my experience as a staffer wanting to have a better way to access information coming in from organizations that were supporting or opposing bills, uh, sorry, uh, and from constituents to make sure that they were real people uh, and to have one place where I as a staffer could see the input that was coming in, but also so that the media or other uh, members of the public could see what Congress was hearing. Uh, so technically, we, that was the obsession. We worked on that. We built it. It works. It functions. And in the process, we found about 25 other things that we thought we needed to work on. Uh, so uh, we're in the process of building it out as more of a civic platform that will provide information both from the federal level to the state level, eventually down to the local level, so that you can find information and, and express your opinion and, and become more civically engaged. Uh, but as far as the challenges that we see definitely, and I think the, the entire civic tech space is, is dealing with, uh, I, I, there are two big ones that I would identify. The first is making sure that the people who are being reached and who are participating are representative of the country and that we're not just uh, creating tools for the people whose voices were already being heard to just be heard more loudly and ex excluding others. Uh, that's a big challenge. It's it's not just a question of digital divide. It's a it's a question of of understanding the process and how to engage and feeling comfortable with it. It's technical. It's social. It's it's content. It's it's big, uh, and it requires us all working together. And I think the Kennedy School can can really uh, convene a lot of those conversations about how we do that better. The second oh, could I hold the mic? Yes, I could. Uh, the second is uh, a challenge around how we. Uh, how we finance and sustain these projects and how they fit together uh, because there's not really a model for uh, civic tech. There are models for kind of old school nonprofits funded by foundations and models for newfangled startups that are funded by VCs and uh, we find ourselves, and this is what my workshop was about here at this, the uh, Kennedy School, we find ourselves at the middle of the Venn diagram. And I think in order to grow and sustain and, and scale this space, there are new models to be invented that involve the private sector and the public sector and the, the nonprofit sector all working together. Uh, and the exciting opportunity that I see out there in the future uh, that we're just beginning to scratch the surface of is the opportunity to leverage civic tech and data 
for better policy making. So not just participation for participation's sake and not just data for data's sake, but actually to engage people and government officials uh, in leveraging data to actually decide where we want to go and how we want to do it in a, in a better, more informed, evidence-based way. Great. So the, maybe the biggest disanalogy between private and public is the financing. I mean, the idea that, yeah, it just if you get more eyeballs, it's going to grow. That depends on a bunch of venture capitalists who think they'll make 10x or 20x from those eyeballs. Well, and, and it's not all, you know, we don't, we don't want to necessarily gen up a lot of activity right. around something if that's not what people care about. It's not our position to, to try to direct traffic. You know, we, right. just, we just want to build the road and let people drive where they need to drive. <laughs> Very good. Great. Well, thank you so much, Arkan, and thank you to the Ash Center and to Tim and Will and to everyone. I think it's really exciting to uh, to be doing this work here and to all the innovators that I'm here with. You guys are inspirations, and it's really incredible, exciting, cutting-edge work, as Arkan said. There's a lot of excitement in the field of practice. And so my research has thought about where can we connect the dots between all the exciting work that is happening on the grounds, but how we can think about what the implications are for public policy. So I'll share just a few thoughts and some of the reasons that I think this is an exciting time to be studying this work and why I think the Kennedy School can play a, a critical role in it. You know, so if you look at this election right now, there's a national conversation of political dysfunction, right? If you turn on the news, the status quo is that people are not engaged and they're very disillusioned with their elected officials. However, if you talk to individuals in communities all across the country, there's a lot of energy, creativity, and enthusiasm. Part of that comes from the availability of open data, unprecedented amounts of government data, and part of that comes from communities coming together and saying, we want to work in more collaborative, participatory, responsive ways. And then the flip side of that is what are the expectations of public sector leaders to then respond and create opportunities for more two-way dialogue. And that, I think, is a big challenge because we're asking a lot of these cities, local communities, exurbs, rural areas to do a lot more with a lot less. And one of the ways that we've tried to buttress this is to bring in external talent from Silicon Valley and from other places. But I think moving forward, that's not going to be enough, right? So we can bring in some talent, but we also need to think about how we develop in-house capacity, how we train the public servants who are going to be there for the next 10, 20 years, and how we can have these dual competencies in technology, but also in politics. And that's where I think the Kennedy School can play a real role in creating that pipeline of leadership, not just to come in and be disruptive, but to actually come in and think about how governance is done on a day-to-day -day way, leveraging creativity, leveraging new technology, but also really being there to put forward the good and the public good. I'm already mic'd up, so. Oh, you are? Yeah. Great. Um, I hope folks can hear me. Uh, so at the center, our work is focused on modernizing the way that local government works. And in particular, uh, right now our focus is primarily on elections and voting. And we do this work in a few different ways. One is by offering actual professional development to the county officials who are responsible for administering elections. So we teach them de data and digital and design skills that are um, things that folks in the private sector have been using for a long time and all other sorts of institutions have been using. But there's been a great lag in the adoption of these skills and these tools in the public sector and in elections in particular. 
in addition to doing that work, we also try to amplify the reach of the really important information that folks that run elections are responsible for letting their communities know. So places, things like where you go to vote or who's on your ballot. And we amplify the reach of that by partnering with technology companies like Google and making that information available through search by standardizing the data that these government offices are making available. And that's how we get the reach of um, tens of millions of folks every election cycle. When I think about the challenges in our work, one of the big challenges, which is also an opportunity, is federalism. Uh, with elections, every <laughs> state does things differently. Um, every locality does things differently. And it makes it really challenging to develop out curriculum or build tools uh, for government that is able to fit the needs of a place both like mm -hmm. LA County that has tens of millions of people, uh, as well as Loving County, Texas, that has 50 people. Um, so really finding that sweet spot of what is uh, professional development that can sort of meet many needs at once. Um, the other big challenge is that a lot of these folks who uh, work uh, in local elections really are committed to doing an excellent job. But there are people who have been in these jobs for decades, and they are not digital natives. And that means that there is a huge learning curve and a lack, lack of confidence around technology that we really have to be able to overcome in order for them to effectively engage their communities through digital means and to effectively utilize data. Um, and when I think about big opportunities on the horizon, one of them really does rely on having this uh, data layer around the information for elections and the opportunity to leverage that data to be able to connect uh, the public with really um, personalized information, so exactly your voting location or your candidates on your ballot uh, at the time when you need that information, so when it's timely and relevant, uh, and being able to push that information to people um, at those particular moments without them necessarily having to look for it. And you've seen some experimentation maybe around this uh, that Google's done uh, over the last uh, two years. Uh, if you have an Android phone, you might have been pushed information uh, about uh, a reminder that it's time to vote uh, and a reminder of what your polling place is. And um, that information is enabled by a data layer that we're one of the folks that contributes to. Um, and I'm really excited to see sort of the opportunities that come with being able to connect people with information around engaging civically without folks having to proactively decide that right now I need to contact my government to solve a particular problem or challenge or find information. Um, well, first off, thank you all um, for being here. It's a full house, standing room only. Um, and thank you, Archon, for the introductions. And I'm excited to be here uh, with my fellow fellows um, <laughs> here today. And thanks to Tim and Will for um, pulling this together. I really appreciate that. Um, in my role, and as uh, Arkan had mentioned, I'm representing uh, my personal opinions and perspectives today. Um, but in my role um, currently at the Department of Health and Human Services, I've had the opportunity to do a tour of duty um, where I'm focused on looking at the organ donation and transplant space in the United States. And um, a big part for me in the beginning, you know, they wanted someone who was new in this field um, to come in to be able to bring this like fresh perspective and um, new skill set and you know new eyes to the space was 
to spend the first six months to do a walkabout and a listening tour and to hear from the stakeholders themselves in the community, um, whether they were you know, individuals um, working in transplant centers, um, organ procurement organizations, the alphabet soup of societies and agencies working in the space. Um, but also just as important for me was to um, speak and meet with transplant recipients, living donors and donor families. And for me, it was really um, at the core of trying to understand, you know, what are the services that um, we're looking at and how might we really address the issues around organ donation and transplant? You know, when, we, when I hear the statistic that, you know, 22 people die every day waiting for a transplant, you know, that's, that's you know, more people are in this room than that. And, you know, it's a really shocking statistic um, and it continues to increase. Um, and so how do we also look at transforming the space by also understanding the needs um, of the community that we're trying to serve? And so part of also the workshop, um, although it might not have been high tech, it was high touch in the <laughs> design thinking um, realm was really to um, have an opportunity to think about, you know, really that understanding of like, who is that user you're trying to develop this idea for, or that you see a need for a certain segment um, of the population, and really that getting to the essence of the user needs and what type of ethnographic research or observation that can help inform policy making um, as well. I think for me in, the, in this space, um, one of the examples that struck me um, from a couple years ago, some people might remember, um, Facebook had put out a new life event whereby you could indicate that you are an organ donor as a milestone um, on your wall. And what they saw in that two-week period when they ran this um, intervention was that there was a six-fold increase in online registrations to become a registered organ donor in the United States. And considering that we only have about 50% of Americans that are currently registered as organ donors, it's a great example to see something that you know, brought awareness to the issue. You also learned that who in your network was an organ donor, but it also linked you to your state registries where you could register. And now fast forward four years um, from then, one of the groups that I'm working with is um, called Organize. Um, so on organize.org, they've created the first national registry whereby it you know, has a better user interface and user experience that anyone can go and register at one place and you get that information gets pushed into your state registries um, to, so that you become registered as an organ donor. So I think there um, is a lot of opportunities in both you know, building awareness around certain issues, but also translating that into action um, for the individuals or also for our communities as well. So uh, do people, how many people have heard the term design thinking before? So most people, and how many people are Kennedy School students? Because I, I think it's, particularly important perspective from the Kenny School because for a couple of reasons. One, when we, we teach policy analysis and the design of policy, it's usually the opposite of design thinking. It's right, like, I know, seriously, I mean, think about a whole system and how it's put together and, you know, get that right. So when you design SCHIP or, you know, a similar public, you don't actually talk to 
any poor kid or somebody on food for AFDC mm -hmm. or TANF, right? You mm -hmm. design the system. And it is, there's some micro there in terms of microeconomics. You think about what their incentives are and stuff like that, mm -hmm. but you don't follow somebody around. I mean, sociologists used to do this in the 60s and 70s, but that's been gone for quite some time. And it's in this kind of ironic, part of digitalization and, and, and the startup world is this ironic um, kind of place now where people are paying much, much more attention to the actual individual behavior from an ethnographic perspective at the same time that they're using data sets that are just much more massive mm -hmm. than anybody could have imagined you know, just a few years ago and bringing both of those together, which is so cool. Yeah. Um, so I'm a database journalist at 538. Um, a bit about what I do, I've built and maintained our polling database that we use for uh, election results. Um, I build and maintain other databases as well. Um, and then I occasionally write about you know, the data that is in those databases. Um, I also, the project that I'm doing with the Ash Center involves natural language processing. I probably won't have time to get into it now, but that is kind of my research <laughs> interest. Um, and so if you're interested in that, I can talk to you about it afterwards. Um, and I also attend civic hackathons. I met Arkhan at Hack for Congress. I've been to the Safra Center Ethics Hackathon. Um, so I have some experience uh, with civic technology there. Um, so in our, in our field, um, one of the challenges and opportunities that we have is kind of becoming more data literate as the world becomes more data literate. Um, for journalists, that's very important. Um, I've been going to this conference for many years now, or for four years now. It's uh, NICAR, the National Institute for Computer Assisted Reporting. Um, and computer assisted reporting is a term with a long history, but recently it's really grown in the four years that I've been there. The attendance uh -huh. has more than doubled. Um, and the, the sessions I've noticed have become uh, more complex as well. The, the first one I went to had a lot of like intro to data, like, you know, training and different uh, methods of analysis, that sort of thing. Um, you know, learning, getting used to Excel or cleaning a data set. Um, and now when I go to these conferences, these introductory courses, of course, are there. But there's also like using Bayesian methods in your reporting, or like machine learning wins and fails in the real world for uh, in, in use in journalism. Um, and so as a community, we are becoming. Um, <clears throat> much more data literate. And th that's for a few reasons. One is the world is has a lot more data. Um, so we have kind of what do you do when you get millions of documents that are completely unstructured text um, and you want to report what you found uh, and turn it around very quickly, you're not going to be able to go through each of those documents individually. And so there are projects like the Overview Project and Document Cloud where you can upload millions of documents, run topic models to kind of figure out what the different subsets of documents within that are and, and um, kind of explore that way. And a lot of these technologies are coming out of uh, journalism, out of journalism programs, or, or practicing uh, journalists, um, and then we're also trying to find insights in these data sets using using data science. Um, there's there's a um, there's a Philip Meyer Award that uh, that if you are looking for good examples of this kind of reporting that uh, is given to uh, journalists who do reporting using social science methods, um, and so there's uh, you know one of the award winners this year. Um, with the echo chamber from from Reuters, and they use topic models to analyze um, the the Supreme Court lawyers that were uh, arguing in front of the Supreme Court, um, and so there's just this kind of uh, there, there's just kind of this kind of explosion of data driven activity um, in the journalism world. 
Um, and I think a lot of journalists are now developing tools that are used outside of journalism. So there's a lot of JavaScript libraries developed by journalists that are used kind of in the software development world more broadly. Um, and, and so, oh, and I also used to be a software developer before I was a journalist. Um, and now I think more and more there are titles like database journalist, and there's less of a separation between who is the journalist and who is the developer. And it's becoming less and less okay to say like, no, no, I'm not that data guy. Like you need to give that to the data desk and then you know bring it back to me and I'll storyify it. Um, <laughs> there, there are... There are database journalists, there are visual journalists who use kind of these visual database tools or geo, geo information systems, um, that sort of thing. And so I think that's, that's one of my messages here. And you know, my, my seminar was a practical training in GitHub and kind of tools of the trade, learning to use the command line, understanding how websites are made, um, understanding this world that you navigate every day on the web, um, and at least having some training in that. So I think it's, it's less and less acceptable to say, no, no, I'm not going to touch this math stuff that's for the geeks. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Good. We were going to break it up for quite, but maybe just if we could just kind of combine it with the um, Aaron with kind of a little bit of the student perspective and then we'll open it up. And um, I think I might get pressed on this because uh, deservedly because I think the Kennedy School should be offering more to people like Tech for Change. But, but let, me, let me push back a little bit before you even push on me. So um, <laughs> when I was teaching a little bit more before I entered the kind of dungeons of academic administration, um, <laughs> I used to, people used to come, students used to come with different startup projects. You know, I've got this project, it's going to save American democracy. And um, hopefully things have changed. This is like probably four or five years ago. But I think probably nine out of ten of them were just really bad ideas for kind of obvious reasons. And so I've kind of had this puzzle that I haven't been able to solve, which is I think from the project level, the most important thing for students to know is a thing that I have no idea how to teach, which is judgment about what's going to work and what, or what has a chance of working, because you never know what's going to work. And it's like some combination of having seen enough projects and a little bit of design thinking and some intuitive idea about what the dynamics of these projects are and how users engage with them and what the value will be. But I kind of want to ask you, has that changed? Has the, like, the 1 to 10 ratio gotten better? Sure. Uh, so, so happy to talk about that. I can also talk about um, what Tech for Change and a few students are doing to sort of facilitate uh, more tech literacy for students at the school. Um, just to go back to, to your thought about people having bad ideas, it's, um, it's interesting because we just finished, uh, if you're an MPP student, we just finished a two-week exercise where we, we take a policy problem and we're supposed to drop a you know, 10 to 20-year solution. In this case, it was, it was immigration spring exercise, for a yeah. spring exercise. And for us, the, the whole approach was, you know, let's read some papers, let's hear from some experts, and let's design the thing. And I think if you, if you took that approach to build some sort of app or any of the, the really awesome <laughs> tools that you're building, you'd miss out a lot on what the, the sort of innovative companies are doing, which is they're getting a lot of user feedback. So instead of me sitting down with a, a policymaker and really selling them on an idea, if I was getting feedback on an, on an app I wanted, I wouldn't sell you on the idea. I'd, I'd ask you lots of questions, ideally, and, and avoid selling and get to that. So I, I wonder if, if maybe it's, it was your fault. No, I'm just joking. Maybe you had bad students. Undoubtedly it was. Probably, probably Archon's fault. Um, uh, so I, maybe it's part of the curriculum, and maybe it's at the, at the business school, maybe they're teaching people to think, 
to think in terms of a minimum viable product or, or something along that. So th those, are, those are my thoughts on that. I'd be uh -huh. interested to hear what, there's a, I see a bunch of other MPP students, so I'd be interested to hear what you think as well. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of what Tech for Change and a bunch of students are doing, uh, I think by and large, if you're at the Kennedy School, there's a lot of advancements that have taken place for students to be able to be more tech literate and start getting, ideally if you're, if you're in a master's program, you're here because you wanna, you wanna do something professional related to public policy and, and to have advancements where we can use technology to get there. So I think there's some advancements that have taken place. I know that um, uh, David Eves is here and a bunch of my classmates have taken his class and loved it. They took CS50. Um, but I think there's a, there's a lot that the school um, really can go forward to make to make it where you could come into HKS and maybe in two years you'd be you'd be working at the FBI and helping out with their policy Breaking analysis. Breaking that and iPhone. You'd, you'd be, well, I because I, I think the problem is is that HKS students come in and they think I need to be a software engineer who's going to be breaking the iPhone and it's more you just need to have a little bit of a. Uh, a BS detector to say, you know, if right. someone's talking so about important. technology, yeah. is is this really what, what should be taking place? And so um, what we're trying to do for, for this August is have sort of a, a coding boot camp and sort of some of it being technical and some of it being what is the command line, what is the front end, what's a database. Um, so what we're trying to do, we're speaking with the administration right now, so this is helpful. That is amazing. <laughs> about, about, getting, about, um, about getting some funding to throw together uh, some sort of boot camp where students can, they're not gonna learn everything that they need to know in this one week, but it'll sort of be a, a kick in the pants to sort of be headed in the right direction. What languages should you be learning? What languages shouldn't you be learning? Doing, doing those sorts of things. So, so that's kind of what the, this, what our student group is focusing on right now. Great, thank you very much. So uh, why don't we open it up now for broader discussion and questions either about the particular projects that people have, which are a great array touching on a number of policy areas, about the challenges that those projects are meant to address, about broader approaches and questions like design thinking or uh, analyzing the user base, or uh, there's a lot on the table. Arthur. Design thinking sounds really, really cool. Market research sounds like they were something they were doing when, you know, when Mad Men was uh, <laughs> um, set. Um, how is design thinking different from market research? Well, I think there's probably a lot of people here who've engaged in some way or other, yeah, other in. I'm all for market research, yeah, yeah. but uh, is there a, a shockingly new idea here other than you know the dogs have to eat the dog food, so let's figure out if the dogs will eat the dog food? Yeah. I think there is, but yeah, once you have a... Yeah, I, so the way I've thought of it, um, having been in the private sector and then um, now in my current role is, one, it's more of a thinking and a methodology and process um, that also really focuses around um, really that understanding of the user's needs up front. So whether it's um, through empathy that can be attained by, you know, just doing interviews like right up in the beginning and hearing those stories and developing those personas. Um, so in addition to the process um, of the design thinking methodology, which you know is an iterative process and there's enough online um, if you just Google, you know, design thinking introductions, um, but also that mindset, which I think is, um, you know, from my opinion, it's sort of that rethinking of how are you generating and getting and understanding those users' needs. Um, where, I, where I've 
thought of like more in, um, you know, traditional maybe like market analytics or um, marketing research that's really targeted with a very specific intention in mind. Um, whereas in this methodology, you might also find things that we didn't know about um, previously, which is part of that development of the insights um, and kind of the thinking and understanding that by simple observations, we might actually find something that we weren't initially set out to ask that question. Um, and then we end up understanding that that's in fact the greater user need um, than we had sort of hypothesized in the beginning. But I'll let other... I was just, I mean, I think, I think yes, and I 100% with everything you said. And so just to sort of reiterate, you know, is it different than a traditional market research? I think yes and no, and I think part of it is we take the best of what's worked before. You know, in my class at Columbia with graduate students, we did design thinking on specific projects, and there was a few really interesting insights that came out of it. One is the amount of time you think you need to do something is just totally off base. People can very quickly come up with great ideas and rapidly prototype and then get user feedback and then integrate them on the spot. So you're talking about really having five or 10, 15 minutes to do things that traditionally you would assign over a semester. And so what I think is very interesting about design thinking, and to Archon's point, which I thought was really interesting about where we're seeing technology, like the rise of data, but sort of this user experience focused point of view, is the idea that you know, you know, someone who's a doctorate, like the idea is you, you have to immerse yourself in something, like it's just totally flips it on its head. And it says sometimes coming in without your, you know, large uh, expertise or the assumptions that you bring with sort of being a real expert in something can actually bring a value add because it enables you to take a different perspective to a topic and quickly iterate on it. I think, I think the biggest difference would be, you know, I obviously was not around during Mad Men, but I've heard of the TV show. Um, I, I think the biggest difference from my understanding of watching Mad from from my understanding of that is, is you had an individual, if you're thinking about this in the workplace, you had an individual person who was your market research associate. And I think that that's shifted right now to have someone who's called a product manager. And they might start off early on in the process saying, you know, what are the needs or pain points for people? And then they'd be working, let's say it's a digital product, they'd be then working with the software engineers to implement that. And then they would be analyzing the feedback from that and seeing, okay, how do we, how do we, do we keep this? How do we iterate that? So I think, I think it's sort of moved the, the product changes and the speaking to consumers yeah. into one role. I think that's how I would describe the difference. Yeah, that's that. That is, I think, in terms of production process, that that's the main difference, right? Marketing occurs after a product exists, usually, whereas a design approach is about what product should exist, right? So there's a guy at MIT I can't remember wrote a book a bunch of years ago about how all of the cutting edge, um, like skateboards, are designed in part with skate punks and hiking gear is designed with people who are avid hikers. One of the most disappointing my re recent experiences is that uh, a friend of mine's sister works at Osprey, the backpack company. I feel like I'm the perfect person to help design the next running backpack. And I wrote to her this long detailed note about the features that it should have. And she wrote me a polite note saying, why don't you check out this or that project product? And I thought, no, I want to design the product, right? And I, I wasn't, I wasn't, no, the one-on-one -on -one doesn't exist yet because of the pain points. I, 
Yeah, that's what I think. That's what I think. But that's the, that's the difference. Oh, back, back here. Yeah. Um, Dave, is this on? My name is David Eves. I run a course, uh, DPI 662, where I try to give students here a BS detector around technology. Um, <laughs> I, I just quickly on the design thinking thing, I, I actually feel like a big part of it is um, market research was about going identifying a market, whereas design thinking, I think, is not about designing products. It's about actually redesigning the institution to figure out ways to serve people. Um, and I think that's actually the really big change that people are trying to drive. Um, for, the, for the public part, yeah. Right. Yeah, for, well, even companies, how do we redesign the organization that delivers the service, not just redesign the product? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's actually a, a big part of the core of design thinking. Um, the question, I wanted to kind of tackle this problem around uh, the civic tech space. Because um, I actually, I don't I actually kind of disagree with the premise. I actually think the civic tech space is like hugely well, it's like actually done massively well. Um, if you think of Facebook or Google as elements of those <laughs> things have civic right. tech in them, like the fact that you get a push notification telling you to go vote, go vote the yeah. fact that, that Facebook tells you, oh, you should be signing up for uh, like an organ donor or transplant, those are civic tech elements that have been built into very, very large organizations that have scaled up. Uh -huh. um, and I think there's a lot of money actually for all sorts of things like uh, NPA or what's it called, the NGV, the guys just down the street who do all like the... NGV. Yeah, I think the, like all of the campaigns are being run. Like there's all civic tech as well. Like it's completely transformed the public space. Um, what I think is interesting is there's a lot of money for partisan, um, yes. partisan type activity, but I think you guys are kind of um, worried about, and I, I kind of want to push you a little bit on, is what you're really interested in is money for nonpartisan activities. And, and I kind of want to push you on why. Or why is the nonpartisan so valuable? Great. <laughs> Excellent, David. Um, other folks want to? Yeah, yeah I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. So I think that one of the things when I think about sort of your complication of the, I have a microphone. <laughs> the complication of your question is that um, all of those things are civic tech that work outside of government, um, what, rather than having a sort of strong relationship with it. And when I think about sort of the sustainability of civic technology, it really dovetails into government technology and have government having the competencies to also um, then know what to do with all of this information um, or all of these inputs from citizens or all these expectations from the public that government's going to operate in a modern way the way that any other institution that we interact with does. Um, and so I see that as one of the challenges and the disconnects between sort of the Google and the Facebook example that's working really well and sort of the state of government being able to then react or adapt to um, all of these advancements that are happening. Um, do you want to talk more about partisan? Yeah, well, and I agree with everything you said, and I also would not expect any less than David Eves to push back. Uh, I. Um, <laughs> I, he he does a great job of preparing Code for America fellows by by shocking them as they start their fellowship into the kinds of bureaucratic frustrations they will experience down the road. <laughs> so he's he's been doing th that public service for quite a while. Um, I I think you know I actually draw a, part of what I think is the maturation of the civic space and the gov tech space and the political tech space and the, is those. Um, distinctions starting to really emerge. So what you described, I would I would categorize as campaign tech and political tech, which you're right. There's tons of resources for it, tons and tons and billions of dollars of resources for it. There's so few resources for governing, and it's so sad that a member of Congress and certainly a presidential candidate, their campaign can know almost what you're going to have for breakfast 
when they're running. And then when they go to govern, it's very difficult to even get good information about the water quality in their neighborhood or, you know, just tons. Just one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tons of information. I mean, there's just such a, a lack of resources on the governing side. And that's, you know, that that's not just a civic tech question. That's a, a governing resources question all around. But I do think that, uh, that the civic side where... Um, where um, citizens and community members are interacting with government, the idea that there is a nonpartisan infrastructure that allows that is is really important. And I, I mourn the fact that so much of our technological advancement and resources has have gone to more of the market research type uh, endeavors and that we spend way more time convincing and uh, coloring and marketing and shading than we do to your point, Arkan, in the search for truth or in the search for what is what is a good policy. I I dream of the day that we're thinking about what we want to do and actually having the data to show us what it takes to get there. But um, but I I think that nonpartisan mechanisms uh, to allow for the dissemination of information and for the participation in government are are really important for both trust and truth and. Uh, that's that's democracy. I have a question for the audience that responds to David, but kind of goes way in the other direction, right? So some people, some of you may have been there. I was at this meeting after the 2012 elections at Google New York, in which they had the campaign directors from the different campaign, the digital directors from the different campaigns, and they were just kind of ecstatic on kind of both sides about the level of micro-targeting and what they were able to do and know and you know, I said to these guys, look, I, I think what you're doing is great for your guy, but terrible for American democracy, because it's not about the debate. It's about, first of all, mobilizing this vote, and it's not even about engaging any issue. And as a matter of fact, it goes the other way, right? Because you know exactly what you need to say to turn this person out. And the response from everybody was, you know, I, I don't disagree, but my job is not to fix American democracy. It's to get this guy elected. That's how I get paid, thank you very much, right? And so they're not the same thing, right? And then the, but the real pushback uh, kind of goes to the data question that all of you and I am involved in open data kinds of things. But what if the really valuable data are the user data that are collected first and foremost by internet platforms, by Google and Facebook and, and Apple, uh, and then bought by people who can afford to buy them, like political campaigns, what if one of the main resources for exercising power is going to be very fine-grained information about all of us and what we have for breakfast and what kind of alcohol we drink and what kind and so right now we just take for granted that all of that is private and should be controlled by ability to pay basically right but if that becomes a very important currency of who gets to exercise power and who doesn't, maybe it shouldn't be private. Maybe we should socialize it. Social democracy, I mean, it's a huge difference. Or better leveraging um, the use of open data, and specifically, what kinds of challenges or opportunities should they be thinking about in applying the city-level context? I can take that one first. So I think one of the challenges that I find in my own work when talking with uh, local government about things like open data is, or is that um, we're already at a language barrier. Like what, 
that idea of open data is something that uh, might be really familiar to the folks that are here in this room, but it's not really familiar to the county clerk that is in West Virginia uh, doing their job every day. And so um, what we try to do is both communicate what these concepts mean, but also how um, this work will actually alleviate pain points that they have in their everyday life and will help them in an already really resource constrained environment be more effective at doing the things that they want to do. Um, so I think part of, I would flip that and like part of the advice that I would have to someone who is working on getting a local city council or anyone else to implement uh, open uh, data policy is to first understand sort of their literacy around like what that means and then what are the challenges or constraints to them to implement one of those and how you might be able to leverage your resources or expertise to help them do that effectively. Yeah, I would just say um, when you think about open data and a lot of the burdens that we're placing on city officials, I think there's a real opportunity for academia, industry, civil society, to create an ecosystem that can really support, buttress, enhance, and provide a community-driven perspective. You're seeing this in places like Chicago, where you've seen Smart Chicago Collaborative, the Chicago Community Trust, MacArthur, the University of Chicago, coming together and creating sort of a real pipeline and an ecosystem to not just have a lot of data, but to make that data usable mm -hmm. and to really put citizen community-driven needs front and center where they're testing products, where they're giving feedback. And so it's not sort of this us and them, you know, we are the government releasing the data, but we're really working in tandem, we're working in partnership, and we're leveraging this external expertise to really make that data usable and valuable in a civic perspective. So building on that, I think, um, and my perspective will come um, more at a federal level, it's one thing to make data sets available, but it's also the value that you can generate right. from them. Mm -hmm. um, and this has been like one of my personal um, areas of interest because it's great to have hundreds of data sets there, but if one, no one knows what they are and why you would use it, it also, kind of defeats the purpose of why we're pushing around open data. Um, one example, um, on a federal level, one of my colleagues is working on, um, it's a wiki page, it's called Demand Driven Open Data, so DDOD. Um, and <laughs> um, so I think if you just Google it, like DDOD or open data, um, it comes up as like the first or second hit. Um, but basically <laughs> what they found a need was, you know, especially in the health spaces, you know, we talk about open data and, you know, healthdata.gov was one of the first, you know, federal um, data, open data portals. But what they found is there weren't many examples of the case studies. And so what they've um, put a request to the community is to both share, you know, your case studies of how you use the data to the community at large but also indicate the case studies that you wish you could do so that um, there can then be mechanisms in place to work with you know, other agencies and partners to tell them, well, like this is why we need this you know, data made accessible because this could be an example of the need or this is an example of the case study. Um, so I'm not sure, um, it's not at a local level um, yet per se, but that's one example and I know this demand-driven open data, is, there's a big push for that to 
really be able to demonstrate um, not only that you're making the data sets available, but the value um, that you're generating from them. I wanted to go back a little bit to when you were talking about um, kind of big data, government making use of that instead of campaigns and nonpartisan. And earlier, um, Tiana, you mentioned, or I think you did, yeah, Google, like reaching out to tell you to vote, right? And so government having this ability to like search for need and tell you things. And I was having a conversation earlier this morning with David where people will take that sort of invasion of privacy from things that they choose, like Amazon giving you, like, here's a book you like, or Google telling me, like, it's time to vote, but that there's going to be, like, 10% of the population who will be horrified by government doing that. And so how do you, so how do you like, you know, balance there between it's really, really good to be able to say, you know, if, if you... Um, are, if you, you're eligible for food stamps, then you're also eligible for these five other things. And we don't want you to have to find that out. We want to tell you without making people paranoid or angry. <laughs> or organ donation. I mean, or, yeah, or, or organ donation. I can yeah. imagine that would be a little scary. <laughs> of civic tech now is, is kind of building on top of open government data sets to kind of be an intermediary there. And it's it's not just the creepiness factor. You know, there's a lot of jurisdictional reasons that you don't need a federal government tool for these kinds of alerts and a local government tool for these kinds of, you know, it, it really works to everyone's benefit if there are um, projects that are in the private sector and the academic sector working with government data. I, I really hope we can all work together so that an individual doesn't have to have 250 apps for each of these things. Uh, but but I think I think there's there's a the combination and cooperation among the public and private and nonprofit sectors. You know, I think the problem is that there's very low levels of trust in government and people right now trust companies more than they trust government. You see that domestically, you see that internationally. And so you know, to David's question about where we, to me it's a question of where do you define the contours of civic, right? And so for me, just personally, the contours are pretty specific, right? And that's why things like Airbnb or Uber for me are not civic technology. You know, we could have a different conversation about just Facebook and Twitter. Right, just a company. But, you know, these things get very blurry. And I think part of why I think this is an interesting time and an interesting space to be studying is can you create these opportunities for re-engaging citizens in small-d democracy so that down the line they can have more trust in governance institutions <clears throat> so that maybe they won't think the government is always out to get them, whereas Facebook is always out to protect them. Mm. <laughs> That's at its core, right. your question. Right. Somebody was telling me about Estonia, which is the opposite yeah. of this. Yeah. And yeah. so there's a principle in yeah. Estonia, in the government of Estonia, that every agency is committed. Once a citizen gives the any part of government some piece of information, no other part of government will have to ask for that piece of information again ever. And the claim was <laughs> that the average time to complete a tax return in Estonia mm -hmm. is three minutes mm -hmm. because I, I guess they can pull it off because there's just a much higher level of institutional trust or at least lack of distrust or something. Anyway, it's kind of different. <laughs> well, and just to add on a point you had mentioned earlier in terms of a focus for the Kennedy School, you know, um, and we had a good discussion about this earlier <laughs> with the fellows was this idea around cybersecurity and privacy. I think many 
oftentimes we think of it as an IT issue or in cybersecurity that it's more of a military or it's a battle, battlefield space. space. But at the end of the day, it's something, you know, users will think about. And so if we think of, um, you know, citizens as consumers, that is going to be something more and more that we consider. And, um, you know, the fact that you might be on a one website and then you come back to Facebook and it's like exactly those shoes you were looking at are now on Facebook. And you're <laughs> like, hmm, like, I don't know how I feel about that. But we, you know, to Holly's point, we've kind of accepted this level of trust with corporations and so how do we also bring kind of those thinkings and considerations into our you know public sector offerings as well and i think it's something where hopefully at the kennedy school and you know other um, public policy institutions where we're having that debate around how does privacy and security um, be part of that equation when we think of public policy needs Uh, Roger Wilson from uh, Civic Decisions. I, I uh, love this point about uh, the partisan uh, uh, politics because um, if you if you don't have good data, uh, I mean, good, if good data doesn't make good politics, forget it. And by good politics, I mean politics that gets people elected. Uh, and and uh, I think the the opportunity here is absolutely in the partisan space but to make a more intelligent party. I love the uh, term uh, database journalist uh, because we need a lot more database journalists in order for citizens, particularly active citizens, to understand government. I, I don't know how many other people in this room spent Saturday in a caucus. I imagine not too many, but I spent last Saturday five hours in a caucus. It's horrible to be an active citizen. It's very, <laughs> very time-consuming, expensive, and, and unsatisfying. And this technology can transform it. Uh, over here and then Carmen. I was just thinking when you were talking about people's concerns about uh, getting notices about something going on that perhaps there was a, a public meeting or something like that. And actually, uh, last month, there was a transportation camp where a lady from uh, Waze was talking about how, uh, which W-A-Z-E yeah. uh, will tell you what's going on on your commute, whether there's a traffic problem or something that's going on. And so they get a lot of their data from um, not just from their users, but also from their uh, from Boston or the city or state and so forth and so on and so they they trade data so to speak but uh, one thing that uh, I found interesting is that where I asked her was I said well if you can get uh, uh, when they'll even give you a notice when um, there's going to be construction next week oh. uh -huh. so or the next month you know as soon as they get it I guess they would share that so you can plan not to use that or choose that week to go on vacation <laughs> perhaps you know and so forth so that's useful stuff which you which, of course, you know, if you want to know, you don't want to be stuck in traffic because, oh, if only I had known, so forth and so on. But the other thing is that if they can get the data about when the traffic, uh, when the construction project is going to be, you know, next week, then that's very close to telling you when the planning meeting was three, five, a year before. And for people 
they, I would rather be in at the beginning of where the bike lane goes, how wide should the bike lane be, how, you know, should there be a crosswalk here, should there be a crosswalk there. And when you ask about those things, they say, oh, we decided that a year ago. It's like, no, 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 I want to know that in the beginning. And that's where, besides the typical voting and caucusing and so forth, it's like some people just want to say, I just want to tell them where I think the bike, the crosswalk should go and if we can get an app. So to me, that's the most disruptive um, data set that the government could come up with, mm -hmm. so. is telling you when, what's, when's the meeting that I want to know. I don't care about anything else. I just want to know where to put the crosswalk mm -hmm. in front of my house. So the speed so, bump meeting. What, yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm Steve Buckley. I'm with Open Government Metrics. So what works and what doesn't work, I think, is, is something I'm very interested in, too. So. Uh, for us, I mean, that is also part of the, the next step of the dream. We started in the election space because it was both the space where we had expertise um, and um, relationships, but one of the things that we're piloting right now is a data set that we call the Local Office Function Index, LOFI. Um, and uh, <laughs> we just really like acronyms and complicated names. Um, but the point of that data set uh, is to both be able to understand in plain language what elected officials are actually responsible for, because we think that that will help people make connections between why they should care to vote for local people at mm -hmm. the local level, um, but also the pathways to information that those decision makers are um, responsible for making. So those. First, you know, it starts with figuring out where those agendas live and where those meeting minutes live, um, if they're online at all, and then, you know, the next step is mm -hmm. digitizing them and then being able to have structured data so that we can make connections so that citizens don't have to know that you have to contact your tax assessor for this specific challenge or problem, but instead be able to start with a problem and be connected to who they need to contact when or um, know when a specific thing might come up. Well, it's, it's also ludicrous that the notice for those public meetings is still required to be printed mm -hmm. in a, a printed newspaper. Of, of certain circulation. <laughs> we, I mean, I'm from Tennessee. We have these small town newspapers that exist on legal notices. And I mean, they, you know, that's... And sometimes you vote on what newspaper gets the Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy. Um, one, one example, like going back to the conversation also around design thinking and prototyping ideas, um, I noticed, I think it was last month in Palo Alto where they, you know, I'm sure they must have had a meeting around developing a bike lane, but they prototyped the bike lane for a couple hours one weekend. So they <laughs> set up, you know, <laughs> That's there was a great this, idea. Set up this bike lane. Um, and, you know, it was like one area um, in near downtown Palo Alto and they actually prototyped it and I actually I, I found that to be a very interesting way that it wasn't necessarily um, you know just by observation but they also you know integrated that prototyping process and then you know once people kind of went through the bike lane experience they were asking feedback like do you think it was easy to make a turn from that street? And um, I'm, not, I'm not a biker, so I, I don't know um, <laughs> what factors might go into um, a biker's uh, thinking for, for the need for the bike lane. But it was also interesting to see how they were not only discussing the idea of a bike lane in a meeting and you know looking at maps, but they also prototyped the idea to get user feedback um, in a very you know simple way on a Sunday afternoon. Carmen, uh, and then Arthur gets the last I want to build on H Holly's uh, answer a couple times back when she brought up the Chicago case and also I think what Marcy is saying um, in terms of 
how do we develop models where we systematically invest <coughs> in the civic, the governing, and the nonpartisan at that interface. And um, so if you take something like, you know, a lot of cities are developing either a director of sustainability or an office of sustainability, and that's obviously an office which is not, first of all, not partisan. It has a tremendous scope in terms of individual actions, household actions, business actions, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I guess I'd love to know, given that it has, it's so important and it's so integrative, um, do you have any thoughts about how to say, yes, this is a very legitimate city investment, this is a very legitimate you know, uh, foundation investments such as MacArthur or the spin-offs from MacArthur, which actually really helped uh, Chicago develop its climate action plan under Mayor Daley. That was basically the result of of that spin-off that Adele Simmons developed. Um, and business people, because without business investment, you know, that ha feels they have a stake in a sustainable city, we're never going to have the resources to sort of do this at the level of sophistication that is needed. And I, I, get, and I don't know the answer. I'm just throwing it out. I know at least the two of you and others have thought about it. But Let's collect two more questions, and then we'll have a quick round uh, to close. Yeah, go ahead. MPP one here as well. I'm in David's class, um, so uh, I've been <laughs> listening to this. Thank you so much for for joining us. I actually had a question about um, this kind of divide between the partisan technology and the governing piece. That's one of the pieces that I'm most interested in, um, and it, I think it relates to how we teach students at the Kennedy School how to create policy and how to implement it. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to sort of the divide between being user-centric and creating um, governance models and creating new programs versus sort of the technocrat model that we have here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> being a little more top-down versus when you create an immigration policy, going and talking to the people that are delivering the service, that are using the service, and how um, in a place like the Kennedy School and then in government itself, you might encourage people to move away from being a little more technocratic or find ways to, to merge those things, but actually encouraging, encouraging that organizational change. So I'm a net immigrant, not a net navid, and I just can't tell you how excited I am to hear all this stuff. That's, I've got more faith in the future than I, than I had before I showed up here today. But I, I have a, 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 a more, it's more like a comment than a question that actually follows from, from what uh, you had said. So. Um, yeah, b better better to actually do the design, you know, you know, find out what people want rather than just telling, assuming what people want. But still, both of those, whether you do that in a smart way or in a stupid way, they both kind of understand us as somehow consumers of government services. And we are that. And look, it's better that the government give us what we want than to give us what <laughs> we don't want. So, so clearly this is an advance. But there's something else that we should be collectively doing. We're not just consumers of government services, we're also citizens. Right. And, and, and I don't yet hear how this is going to um, develop ideas of justice and fairness so that uh, we can include citizens as citizens in a deliberative process so that those people who are authorized to make decisions have a better sense 
of, now of course, there's a sense in which that's what our politics is doing, but our politics seems to be more, <laughs> you know, marketing to rather than, you know, gather, gathering from. And, and I have another, uh, I, I think, le less, less, you know, more concrete um, point, which, 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 I, which I think is related. Um, so, two hypotheses, and they're, they're rather kind of cautionary or pessimistic hypotheses. Any kind of kind of civ you know free open civic database that we come up with, no matter how brilliant and useful it is, will be by the private sector monetized, sold back to us. It's by itself not a problem, but filtered and massaged for the purpose of monetization rather than for our civic purposes. And corollary is that any civic database that we come up with, brilliantly designed for our purposes, will be turned around by partisan politics, right? Used back on us for purposes of narrow partisan election. And again, that's not a problem, I'm all for politics, but again, it will be filtered and shaped for the purposes of putting someone in office rather than for the purposes of um, uh, generating public deliberation. So, so my question for all of you marvelous experts is, how, how can we make this kind of open data movement strategy-proof in the sense that, <laughs> how can we build it so that we can minimize the way in which it could be turned from these noble purposes and simply turned into yet another kind of marketing device? Great. Let's have a quick lightning round of responses to either, you can comment on these questions or if you have things that you've wanted to say like, What's the greatest next technology that's going to really make things better? That would be good too, but it's up to up to <laughs> folks to use the, the lightning round however they like. Sure. Um, so my response is not to any of these questions in that case. Um, <laughs> They're too hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if if we're talking about just like cool technologies that are out there, one of the things that I'm interested in is um, natural language interfaces for interacting with. Uh, large data sets. So in, in one place where that's useful is in disseminating news, but it could also be very useful when the government receives, for example, thousands of emails from constituents all over the country and the you know, congressional office has no idea what to do with it and probably just sends back like a pre-baked, like, thank you for participating in the process uh, kind of response. Um, and so I, uh, one of the kind of cool advancements that I think uh, could make a difference in this realm and in the, the kind of identifying you know, where is that meeting that you're looking for or something like that, um, it would be cool to be able to just ask a, a natural language processing interface, just like, uh, how do I fix, you know, where is the pothole meeting for my house? Um, so that's that's kind of the cool advancement that I've been thinking a lot about recently, and uh, that's something you're interested in, I'll talk to you about after. <laughs> so I'll be really quick. I have some thoughts on sort of the civic technology creating, uh, you know, civic activism or all of those sorts of things. I think you have to be, my personal, I was a community organizer for my first job at a university. I think you have to be, I, I don't think it's really possible for the tools that we're creating to create the, the social movements. I think that if you look at social movements that have been successful, people feel prob problems pretty acutely. And then if you look at the Arab Spring, yeah, people were really pissed off about corruption and they were hungry and the internet made it easier for them, to, for them to organize. They didn't go, here's this really cool tool, Facebook or whatever, let's, what do we wanna do? Let's, let's, let's all sit in Tahrir Square. So that, that's sort of, that's my analysis. I'd love to hear what people think. Great. Um, I think, Angel, to your point, I mean, I think um, in many ways, it's almost like we can um, 
you know, um, implement a design thinking? How might we to, you know, how does government operate? Or how might we rethink the way that bureaucrats, you know, have an opportunity to innovate? Um, I think, you know, the program and the um, home that I sit in at HHS is the HHS Idea Lab. And they've tried to create ways that you can partner with individuals in the private sector to come in for a tour of duty, or, but also a big part of it has been how do we rethink of the culture around government? Um, and for those civil servants, how do we give them outlets and opportunities to, you know, through an accelerator program, bring forward an idea that, you know, they've been, they're the experts, right? They've been working maybe in this space, some people I've met with like 20 years. And it was like, well, why don't you pitch this idea to the accelerator? And they were like, oh, no, 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 like it's too radical. Too. I was like, just let's try it, right? It's, a, it's within the confounds of HHS, so there is that support network. And lo and behold, you know, they won the accelerator for all of HHS, which was, you know, that's like great examples of where um, it's, it's part of it is also this um, culture change. And um, how do we, how do we um, balance you know, an environment that's extremely risk averse with being innovative and questioning that is status quo. And I think it's applicable in the private sector, but even in other um, large institutions, you know, potentially, you know, like a university as well. Um, to the point around like including citizens in the process, um, um, you know, one example in this administration has been the We the People petition. Um, and I think what was interesting, one of the initiatives I worked on um, was the public access. So it was around making federally funded research, um, both the publication and the data, uh, available to the public for free 12 months after publication. And so think, you're working with publishers, right? Businesses, and we're saying, well, a taxpayer has paid for this research, therefore, you know, a taxpayer should get access to that publication and the data. And so part of it is also thinking, you know, how do you think of the businesses, but also how do we best serve um, the public? And the whole, you know, part of the impetus to move forward with that was through a We the People petition. And so it created the mechanism, it brought awareness to the issue and galvanized, you know, um, the White House and, you know, I think in the end it was like 23 to 28 agencies that ended up participating this, some even voluntarily, um, to, you know, move forward with public access. So I think um, as we think of, you know, you know, on this panel, when we think of technology and democracy, there, there are these, you know, little um, prototypes and betas that are out there. Um, and as we start using it, it will go into making changes in the slower mu moving bureaucracies. Um, but that's just one example um, to share. Thank you. <laughs> um, so also to Angel's question, um, one <coughs> body of work that I would hope that folks here explored is think while thinking about sort of making that shift towards a more user-centric approach is um, the work of a woman named Lauren Ellen McCann. Uh, and in particular, uh, it is um, this idea of build with, not for, uh, particularly for civic technology. Um, and she, you know, writes a lot about it. She recently released a book called Experimental Modes in Civic Engagement, and it outlined um, 
a couple of different uh, strategies for being more effective at building tech, civic technology that starts with really deep listening in communities, um, that lifts up the importance of bi-directional learning and lifting up the folks that you're working with and trying to serve as experts and learning from them while also providing your unique expertise. Um, it lifts up the importance of working within existing social structures in uh, local communities uh, in order to be able to really effectively meet their needs. Um, and I think that she does a really great job of also lifting up Kate's studies across the country where that's been an effective way to build lasting uh, civic technology but also lasting relationships and have the change that both those community groups and the folks that are helping build that technology uh, we're hoping to achieve. Um, the other one piece that I would recommend that folks uh, read um, is the Three Lovers of Civic Engagement, which is a talk and a, a paper by Anthea Watson-Strong, who's on the Google Civics team. Um, and she found um, this in an old, older political science text, this uh, formula about what drives civic participation. Um, and it does a really excellent job of rethinking how we uh, understand sort of the cost of civic action for citizens um, and how we think about sort of the potential for impact with the tools that we're building or whatever the action is um, with the actual cost that it takes for someone just to take uh, that time out of their lives to engage in our process and how we might use that framework as we think about the tools that we're um, building so that we keep it really grounded in real people's experiences. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not gonna be able to answer all of them, so I'll just give a few <laughs> I'm happy to talk after the event. I mean, I think what we're really seeing is a question of do you think institutions are the locus of change or do you want to circumvent institutions and really think about the opportunity for technology to connect individuals to individuals and that's a theory of change. And what I think is exciting and interesting about this space and this moment is sort of that interface, right? And so where we see the opportunity for people to more directly connect to these institutions and the role of intermediaries to really facilitate that. So whether it's you know the rise of participatory budgeting in the US that we're seeing growing exponentially or to Carmen's point about sustainability offices that are working across government to create an interface and a point of contact for individuals. You know, that's, I think, where we're going to increasingly see the opportunity. And I think, you know, academic institutions have a really interesting role to play, you know, in fostering that, in seeding it, in, you know, Chris Osgood from the New Urban Mechanics was on a HBS fellowship, and that helped spawn this office that then got seeded into government, and then had all these trickle-down effects. But I think it really takes creating sort of that pipeline and creating mentorships, creating seed capital to take those risks and creating an ecosystem where people can share their lessons learned and understand where are you seeing institutional change, where are you seeing the interfaces, and where are you seeing social and civic entrepreneurs working together to address the same policy goals. Yeah, there's so many good questions. <laughs> uh, and I, I love you bringing it back to the, the institutions, Holly, because um, I definitely fall, I think, on the side of the institutionalists, certainly with Congress um, and even the federal government. I, I think that there's a great opportunity um, that's only arriving now for technology to, to strengthen those institutions and make them serve uh, the public better. Uh, I kind of see this um, continuum of, of the 
this world uh, evolving. So we, we started with transparency kind of for watchdogging's sake, which grew into open government and data uh, kind of for open for open sake, and then on to uh, delivery of services and civic participation, which is kind of where we are now. And I think that there's this more integral uh, next step that uh, incorporates data and participation and transparency, but all uh, to to the the good of better policy, which is really where I think the Kennedy School can can tie it all together, bring it all together. So I'm really optimistic about that. Uh, to the, cr I actually loved you bringing the, the, the question of technocrats back. I've been researching that word lately because I know there's such a, there's a bit of a negative uh, <laughs> history and context to it, but it just, it feels like a word that should be reclaimed because <laughs> <That's hard. laughs> so much of, so much of what you hear from people when they talk about government is that they really just want it to work. And, you know, there are certain things that people are passionate about where their activism comes into play, but there's so much of it that people don't want to think about or participate in. I mean, there's just some things that should just work. And I'm okay with a technocrat using data to make it work. Uh, but I also think that there's this snowball coming that is a, a, colossal change in policy making and policy implementation and regulation that we're only seeing the beginnings of and I think we're only beginning to talk about and I think um, that's going to require a different kind of public participation. So we see it in you know drone software that is baked into the drone that tells the drone where it can fly and if the law changes that software is going to get updated and the drone won't fly into that is self-executing law and it's going to be you know when uh, when you have autonomous driving, you're going to have the same thing. The, the law is going to be baked into the car. And big ethical decisions are coming down the pike about how you can market that car with that software and the decisions that will be made. And it's not just in the transportation field, but I think these kinds of questions that are coming that, yes, leverage technology and leverage data are going to require a different kind of public participation that so much of what we're working on now is just getting us all ready for. Well, back to the question of infrastructure, like the infrastructure needs to be in place for these discussions to happen, the deliberation that you talked about. Um, so I I'm hope, that, hope that the Kennedy School is, is, is working on uh, asking and answering those questions. That's great. So um, just a couple of thoughts here to the governing versus campaigning question. I think that, you know, one of the great things about current developments, Holly's book, some folks uh, working at the Kennedy School, but lots of folks all around the world is figuring out more participatory design thinking ways of developing public policy in the governing phase. And so there are lots of resources for that. I think the United States is by and large a laggard, not a leader in that, at least at the federal level. Um, but, but it's not like we don't know how to do it. And so I think, you know, if people push for it, it's coming. Um, I like you know, Arthur, your, I don't think there is any strategy proofing, but at least we can make them pay. So this is an idea about shifting from open data to progressively priced data. So Jason Lanier has this idea that, uh, that we're all being exploited quite a lot right now in terms of internet utilities gathering our information and then making a lot of money from it, right, through the marketing. And, and so one way to reduce that exploitation is, 
if they paid us a little bit every time they collected a little bit. And that might be cool on the individual level, but you could also do it at the governmental level for open data, right? I mean, make it free for small operators, but if you're Yahoo or Google and you're giving the weather report to a lot of people, why shouldn't NOAA get a little bit of a kickback from that if you're doing it a billion times a day, right? I mean, so it wouldn't be strategy proofing, but a little, little more even-handed. And then to the public sphere question and the deliberate, I guess I feel like I'm kind of coming out of thinking about the Shorenstein Center for Press and Politics, and I feel like we're going backwards, not forwards. And so this is an institutional question, and it's an ethical question, right? So the whole era, remember you know, when there were large newspapers with well-funded investigative reporting and media that was advertising funded, right? And we were in this, one way to tell the story is for a few decades we were just really lucky in that newspapers got all of this excess revenue from advertising. They plowed it into their news bureaus that were governed by a professional ethos of investigation and holding power accountable, right? And now that advertising, and so in effect the newspapers were making a lot of money and plowing some of that money back into creating this enormous public good of the public sphere that was ethically governed even though there were corporations that basically could have done anything they wanted with that. And now we're in a stage where all of that revenue has shifted to three or four companies in Silicon Valley who are no longer governed by that ethos of providing the public good that feeds public deliberation. They're governed by, and they're using it to buy minibuses for their employees to commute from the across the Bay Area and, and other things, right? Um, as a matter of fact, I asked um, uh, an official from, from one of these companies whether or not, you know, if he, he was absolutely convinced that tweaking their information algorithm would improve the quality of American democracy, would they do it? He said, no, no way. Look, we got people for the whales, we got people for abortion, against abortion, recycling. People are asking us to tweak the algorithm all the time. Democracy, you know, what? No. Um, and so should there be some sort of ethos or regulation that puts a thumb in the scale for creating the public goods of deliberation that are necessary for public deliberation and democracy? Or do we just kind of let the market go and the ethos, whatever ethos emerges from that in Silicon Valley, do, what, do its thing? I think we just kind of lucked out in the post-war period. We run out of luck in that domain. Maybe we say goodbye to it. Maybe we find another way of providing it. I don't know. Um, so that's not, a, I hadn't meant to end on that. But I do think the future is quite a bit brighter because we have brilliant people working on this problem who are engaged both in the Kennedy School and outside of it and with the Kennedy School. So this is definitely the beginning of the conversation and not the end of one. So thank you very much, everyone. Thank you.